Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. Thank you everyone for listening to our show. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. I wanted to start this show, A Gift from Adversity, since I published my book, A Gift from Adversity, in 2020. Subtitle is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness, which I talked openly about my experience of adversity. So my vision was to tour with the book and then share my stories, but then pandemic hit and it never really happened. So I wanted to create this platform where people can share their adversities, not just me, but people who had overcome their fears and then adversity that they can share to empower other people. So anyways, today we have a wonderful guest. He is an amazing actor and creator. His name is Ethan Rogers. Ethan, thank you so much for coming to A Gift from Adversity today. Jerry, thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'm honored to be on the show. Absolutely. So Ethan, can you please tell our audience who you are and what you do? Yeah, uh, my name is Ethan Rogers. I'm an actor, writer, producer, director, um, jack of all trades, master of none. Um, and uh, yeah, so right now I'm just kind of uh, getting, I've been in acting for about the last five years or so. Um, I've directed one short film, uh, Do It Like Andy. You can find that on YouTube. Um, I'm proud of it. Um, and we're working on a few other projects right now. My writing team and I, um, we have at least two large projects in the pipeline. Um, one that we're moving into um, production and finance for um, right now. Um, that one's the trunk. And the other one we're still working on uh, on fleshing it out, but I can I can say that we just finished our first draft of a pilot episode for that. And that's uh, going to be quite different than the trunk. <laughs> I think I lost your audio. Oh, I'm sorry. So thank you so much for sharing that. And then do you have any website or Instagram that people can go to? Yeah, um, at the Ethan Rogers um, on Twitter, I think. I don't use Twitter all that often. Um, Instagram I'm on more often. Um, I think that one's also, I'm, I'm not very good at this, in, about social media stuff. Um, at the Ethan Rogers, I think is, is my Instagram uh, and my, yeah, my Instagram handle. Um, Facebook, Ethan Rogers, you can search for me on there. Um, I'm still working on getting a personalized website set up but that is in the works. Got it. So people can find uh, typing your name, Ethan Rogers. Yep, I'll be there. Perfect. All right. So we would like to jump in to our main topic, which is to talk about adversity. And I really thank you and the other guests who came on my show um, being so brave to share their adversities in their life. So what is your adversity? Um, the biggest one for me is, is my mental health issues. Um, I have several <laughs> um, without getting into a whole bunch of them. Uh, the big one for me is, you know, the um, I have PTSD from uh, my time overseas. Um, 
I was a military police officer for five years. I served in Afghanistan from uh, 2013 to 2014. Um, so I have some PTSD issues from that. But for me, the the big one is I have what's called schizotypal personality disorder, which is a form of schizophrenia. Um, it's on the so if schizophrenia is a spectrum, kind of like autism, let's say, um, and you can be either full blown schizophrenic on one end of the spectrum or have mild schizophrenia on the other. I'm, I'm more towards the mild side. Um, but just the different ways that's impacted my life and not even realizing it until I was in my early 30s. Um, so I lived for a good portion of my life with this undiagnosed form of schizophrenia, um, which according to my doctors, I've probably had my whole life, you know, and it makes sense. Um, in conjunction with my service and overcoming the obstacles that that created um, just by going through them. Wow. It's a lot of information to digest. First of all, I want to um, dissect a little bit going back to serving our country, which really appreciate you. Oh, no, thanks. Yes, absolutely. Being a military police officer and then PTSD, what kind of PTSD are you suffering from, you think, the most? Um, I've gotten a lot of my symptoms under control over the last few years, but it's taken a long time. Um, so nightmares, um, things like that, I have those pretty frequently. Um, there are certain cognitive disassociative moments, I think is what the technical term is, or part of a technical term where you actively will disassociate in the moment um, that happens sometimes best way to describe that it can be like um for a pop culture reference saving private ryan when tom hanks is on the beach in the first scene and he's shaking and everything just kind of drops out around him it's that kind of a sensation um yeah there's there's a few different ones um associated with it hypervigilance that's a big one that i think a lot that's pretty common throughout a lot of ptsd survivors or people with PTSD, whether it's from, you know, trauma, domestic trauma or military service. I think hypervigilance is, uh, is a huge, huge um, symptom that a lot of us deal with. So over the years, have you, have you been able to kind of pinpoint what's the cause of maybe if there was any specific event that happened in Afghanistan? that you could kind of recall or just kind of go overall blasting well the thing is there was there was a couple of incidents that were that stand out that were that were pretty that were rugged um but for the most part what i was doing was i was a i was a military police officer in afghanistan and we were working on the second largest base in the country um kandahar airfield i was essentially a cop on a military installation in afghanistan um, there were sixty thousand people there during the height of the summer and the base itself was 12 square miles by four square miles. So not a very large place. And I think there were 32 of us to police the population. And there were other units that were in charge of, you know, like tower security and stuff like that. Although I spent plenty of nights up in a tower. Um, and yeah, so we would investigated a range of cases. We had uh, sexual assaults, sexual harassments, 
um, a couple homicides, um, over 100 rocket attacks, small arms, uh, ground attacks. Um, did I say riots? I think we had two riots while I was there. Um, yeah, we 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 covered a whole a whole bunch of different stuff um, in our in our day to day operations. I cannot even picture what is it like to be a military police officer and experiencing all these things that you just listed. And I am a journalist, and I interviewed a lot of people. And then every time I hear these stories and then type words, when you say it, like even just a word homicide or like riot, like even one person say in America or maybe in Japan, like where it's kind of privileged and then, you know, peaceful, that maybe one thing can cause the PTSD if they had experienced that. But you have like 10 of those things. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. It's hard to pin down. I think it was a it was a overexposure, um, and I don't know, you know, if my prior mental health issues made me more vulnerable to PTSD. You know, so I don't know if being on the schizophrenic spectrum made me more susceptible to being traumatized. I don't know. I know that they play into each other. I know that having one doesn't help the other. Um, so there's that, um, but yeah, so we went through all those things and, um, a few other things, um, green on, there was a green on blue attack. That was not great. That happened while I was there. Um, a friend of the unit was killed, um, in the attack. Um, so yeah, there was, there was, there was some, it wasn't the Korangal Valley, you know, it wasn't Restrepo. I'm not ever going to pretend like it was, it wasn't that, um, but we had our own level of stress and constant threat that I think over time wore down on me and other people in the unit. Wow. Do, um, are you still in touch of these people that you worked with in Afghanistan? A couple. Yeah. A few, a few of the guys I'm still in touch with. Um, I left with some, with mental health issues about a year after I came home. Um, I came home and nothing that we were doing made much sense to me. Got it. You know, I was standing in formation one day. I think it was our first, our first drill back, mm. you know, when we were standing, I was standing in formation and I was like, well, what are we even doing this for right now? And I think it was at that moment that, I really started to spiral, you know, when, when you can't justify it to yourself anymore. And then it just was a downhill slide from there. Um, alcohol, drugs, um, bad choices. And it spiraled until finally one day I got caught. And <laughs> I was given the choice. I was like, <clears throat> they said, hey, um, because I was in, I was in good standing with the unit up to that point, and everybody liked me. I was really good at my job. That was the thing. Like I was very, very dependable. I was very good at my job. I cleared every case that ever came across my desk. Um, I was. I had a reputation for. I had a good reputation, and so when this happened, it was kind of a surprise to a lot of people in, in the uh, in the command structure of the unit. And they gave me the choice. They said, "You can stay or you can go." 
we're not going to force you either way. And uh, I said, okay, I want to stay. Initially, when it first happened, I wanted to stay and I wanted to work through the program and I got into therapy. And over time, because um, I was trying to figure out like what's what's going on, what's the root cause of, of these issues that I'm having. And I was getting ready to go to drill one weekend and uh, I hadn't admitted it to anybody at the, at the time, but I had a pretty serious plan on, on killing myself. I had everything worked out as to where I was going to go and what I was going to do and, you know, what would trigger such, such an event, things like that. And uh, I had a panic attack for about six hours the night before drill. I had my uniform all laid out. I was looking at it and I just froze. I couldn't move. I sat there um, forever. And all I could think about was following through on the plan and just going out and taking my own life. That was all I could think about. Was, and I was just frozen in that moment where it's like, okay, the next thing that happens is going to be, I'm going to go kill myself. Um, and I finally broke and I called one of the uh, not commissioned officers, sergeant that I deployed to Afghanistan with. Uh, I called him and I said, like, Mike, I can't do it. It's like, I don't know what's going on, but I can't do it, Mike. And he's like, all right, cool. Don't do it. Stay where you are. And, uh, yeah, uh, he saved my life that day. It was just that one, that conversation of saying, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You know? And then from there, the unit helped me transition out, um, I've got nothing but good things to say about the command structure and the people in charge of the 237th Military Police Company. Um, those guys were there for me when I needed them. Um, they helped me more than they should have or they needed to. And um, they got me out. And that's what I needed. And I've got to let, speaking of getting out, I've got to let my cat out really quick. Just one second. <laughs> All right, there you go. Go ahead, get out of here. I would have showed everybody the cat, but she would have attacked me, and that's just not good television. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, uh, transitioning out of the uh, out of the army was really the start of of the whole journey, you know, um, because from there I've tried. Pardon me, um, as far as therapy goes, CBT, RebT. Uh, EMDR, um, group therapy, talk therapy, um, and a whole bunch of spirituality. <laughs> I've done some shaman training and some, some spirit work, um, all on this journey to try and figure out like, why does my, why did I have the reaction that I had and what's actually going on in my brain? It turns out I'm schizophrenic. <laughs> wow. So, so what did you mention? I know EMDR because for my therapy, I tried EMDR. So the, for mm -hmm. the audience who doesn't know about EMDR, it's eye movement desensitizing yes. reprocessing. And it was discovered uh, by Dr. Shapiro in 1980s to mm -hmm. the veterans of Vietnam War. Yes. And it's basically stimulating the limbic part of the brain by following either light 
or the vibration left and right, which mm -hmm. I, my therapist actually used the vibration. I use and, the vibe, they use the, the leads, the vibrating leads with me. Okay, great. And then the purpose of it is uh, when the trauma triggers uh, the cognitive part of the brain, when you take the temperature, it goes completely black and then it goes fight, fight or flight or um, freezing, frozen, like anything that you can think of to have a panic attack because the limbic part gets fired up. Mm -hmm. And as like a uh, primitive part gets fired up, you can't think anything else. So the goal is um, to follow the light. It's like a REMS replica of REM sleeping where we actually cleanse our trauma during the sleep that when you are awake, that you use the method to bring the trauma from the core part of the brain to the cognitive part of the brain. So you can almost see it like a movie. So that's the EMDR. Yeah. But then I don't know about the two things that you used. Uh, CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. And, and what, uh, what it was else? The uh, rational emotional behavior therapy, REBT. Rational what? Emotional behavior therapy. So rational emotional behavior. Yeah, so I've tried a lot. I've tried a lot at all. Um, some psychedelics because uh, mushrooms are supposed to be great for depression and PTSD. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to endorse it one way or another, but I can tell you that I've tried it. And yeah, I think it helped. Um, but it's all these things. And my, my message about mental health is that one, it's really important to know about your brain, you sure. know, because if you don't know what's wrong with it, then you can't work to fix it. Sure. I didn't realize what was going on with my brain until I actually went and got diagnosed with, let's say I'll go down the list. Pardon me. I'll go down the list of all the things. So I've got ADHD type two, Bipolar, combined type, depression, anxiety, PTSD, and the schizotypal personality disorder. Wow. That's that's the spectrum that I'm working with here. Um, it wasn't until I went and actually sat through eight hours of cognitive behavioral neurological analysis testing. I sat through eight and a half hours of this stuff. Wow. Um, the VA made me go after my last suicide attempt. They were like, no, you're going you're, you're gonna to go get checked out. So I was like, okay. I went and got checked out. Wow. So I sat through eight and a half hours of testing for them to tell me all this stuff about my brain. And um, yeah, I hadn't, it all made sense. Everything about my personality disorders over the years that I've encountered made sense. And so my message is that it's really important to talk to the right doctor about what's going on with your brain. Because if you just talk to your primary care physician, they aren't trained to properly diagnose and prescribe medication for your mental health disorders. They're a great place to start. They're a great place to get a referral. But if you're seeking therapy and medication, you should get evaluated and then get medicated. So, because yes, go ahead. That's just going to yield you greater results than just going to your primary care physician and be like, oh, I'm depressed, I think. Well, maybe you are depressed, but maybe you're bipolar. Or maybe you're on, you know, a maybe you have a form of ADHD 
and a depression medication won't be the right thing for that. Well, thank you so much for being so brave and sharing this with our audience. And I know people who are listening to our show can relate to some of what you are saying and then be their rescue because these kind of topics are very hard to talk to sometimes and there's not so much information out there and the people are confused. And for my case, and we actually talked about it, Ethan, Mm. uh, off this show about emotional injury Mm. that we actually wished both of us kind of that it's visible, but it's not. People don't understand that we are hurt and then we have this significant damage injury. And it's like, it's, it's, you know, you wish you had lost a leg or something or a finger at least, you know, so somebody can see it and it's because it's about our societal need to justify our own injury to other people somehow. You know, and I think there's a lot of stigma on people with mental health acknowledging that they have mental health issues because of that, you know, so it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy almost where it just is a cycle that just keeps on doing the worst thing possible, Um, which is, you know, you're afraid of being judged for having this mental health issue and you don't get treatment for it. And because you don't get treatment for it, it proceeds to get worse because you're afraid of being judged. I completely understand. So, Let's actually shift a little bit of gear of tangible method and tools that you used to overcome this adversity that may help other people also. Yeah, absolutely. So far, the best tool that I've found after having searched through all the therapies that I've tried is medication and cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, Those two things combined, getting on the right kind of medication and the right dosage um, combined with therapy as needed um, helps tremendously. Uh, personally, one of the things, uh, that's one of the first right there, do, do that. Um, second, stop drinking. If you, if you have mental health issues and um, you want to get better, stop drinking. It's the first thing I can absolutely recommend. You're going to lose weight. You're going to feel better. Um, you're going to spend less money. And you might actually realize that you're a decent person, um, but you got to stop drinking. That's number. That's that should be number one. After, number one and number two should be. Yeah, stop drinking. Bottom line, stop drinking. Um, and then, I found a healthy dose of spirituality helps. I'm not telling anybody who to worship, pray to, whatever. Um, I've found my own way. Um, on a semi uh, spiritual path um, through a lot of soul searching and meditation and training. Um, Like I said, I did some uh, shamanistic training with a couple of groups out here. I've done some spirit work. Um, If that helps, then do it. But I've found that you can do all that stuff, but if you're not medicated to help keep your brain balanced, it's going to be significantly harder because I was doing all that stuff for like six years, going to therapy, um, 
meditating, doing the spirit work, trying to find my way. I was doing all that stuff for six years and I was still cratering out with my depression. My depression and my anxiety would be because I'm bipolar. You know, so I've got the manic highs because I, it's combined type or type two, whatever it is. I don't know. Um, so I get the manic highs and the manic lows. And I didn't get, I didn't understand that. So I didn't have anything in my system to manage those highs and lows out with. And without that, I kept bouncing up and down. And so I was doing all the meditation. I was doing all the, all the spirit work. I was doing all the therapy, you know, but I wasn't medicated. And you can do all the all that stuff, but that's not going to actually fix the chemicals in your brain. That's just bottom line. It's uh, you can meditate till you're blue in the face, and you'll feel better for a while. But you're still, if you have those, if you have bipolar, depression, anxiety, PTSD, if you have these things, you are going to end up cratering at some point, and then you're going to think that those things don't work you know and you're going to enter this cycle of self-doubt where meditation actually does work but if your brain needs to be medicated in order to not crater out and then peak back up then when you get to that crater you're going to be like oh none of this is worth anything you know i do all the medicate i do all the meditation i do all the therapy you know i do all the the stuff and i still feel like this and it's going to be incredibly self-defeating for you. So if, if you're not doing as many different things as possible to shore up your mental health. Yes. It's just going to continue to get worse. And none of those things are going to make any of it better. Because you're just going to run into this cycle of, you know, self-perceived failure. It's not failure. You know, you didn't fail at meditating. You can't fail at meditating. <laughs> you know, like, but if you feel like you do it all the time and it doesn't actually help you because your brain isn't functioning properly anyway, then you're going to feel like it's just a waste of time. And it's going to be very, like I said, very self-defeating. So how does acting play the role in your life right now? Yeah, acting saved my life. Um, Cause I was in a really depressed place. Um, this is before I started acting, um, before I got on medication, but it was right around the time I got on medication and started turning things around uh, about four or five years ago. Um, acting allows me to channel all that energy that I have from my schizophrenia, from my bipolar, from my ADHD. <laughs> it allows me to channel all of it. It gives me a place to put it. Um, one of the benefits of my schizotypal personality disorder is that it allows me to quickly pick things up and put them down. So uh, mentally speaking, so I can quickly pick up a subject, learn as much as I possibly can about it, and then put it down and never think about it again. And so if I take that little twitch of my brain and focus it, on acting, I can take a script that I picked up a day ago and memorize it in a very short period of time and conceptualize it and build my character out. And I put all of that stuff that my brain normally wants to be self-destructive with that doesn't have a place to go. And I just shove it all into acting. <laughs> so 
do you know like who introduced you to acting or did you always wanted to become I, an actor growing I've up? I've always wanted to act ever since okay. I was a kid. Um, but I didn't get into acting until, um, like I said, about four or five years ago, I was at a very depressed point in my life and I needed to do something different. I had been out of the military for a while and I was just working some dead end sales job. And um, I was like, well, I've always wanted to act and I'm in my thirties and if I'm going to do it, now's the time to do it. You know, I'm single. I don't have any kids. I don't, you know, like, what am I, what am I doing? I'm just drinking. Um, it was back when I was still, I was drinking a little bit. Um, and I found my first agent, Sophia Sanyanka, who works with, now she works with Shea Management out of Worcester in Boston. I found her online and they were doing an open audition call um, for looking for new talent. I sent in my information. I didn't expect to hear anything back. Um, her assistant got back in touch with me. I went down to Boston. I took the bus into, into Boston. You know, I did like the classic, I'm going into the city to try and make it big. And uh, I auditioned for Sophia and she picked me up, got me my first commercial job, um, working on an ESPN commercial. And then I swapped over, I went and also worked with Shea Management, um, did IMTA through them, uh, which is a great experience if you can go do it and just kind of been rolling with it. Um, I have a bunch of people to thank for the success that I've had and the opportunities that I've had, like Sherry Lee. I don't know if you know Sherry Lee at all or if you've ever worked with her, but she's absolutely amazing. She helped me get an audition for Stray, which was one of my first short films. Um, absolutely amazing person. Wouldn't be where I am right now without her. Henry Columbar also. Um, my writing partner wouldn't be where I am right now without him. He uh, did the first commercial I was in. He because he has a videography company, and Cherry uh, was the the bride and I was the groom, and we were doing a mock wedding, and that was like the first thing that I did. Um, looked so good, people thought we were actually getting married. Wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was solid. We did a good. We we killed that one. Nice. So, yeah, acting saved my life. If I didn't have acting, I don't know what I'd be doing. Um, yeah, it's who doesn't want to play dress up all day? <laughs> right. <laughs> who doesn't want to hang out with your friends? And, Even eight, eight degrees. <laughs> yeah, it freeze at eight degree weather. Uh, what I build, build houses Summer. out in the mud um, or any of the th crazy things that we do. I, I, don't know. I wouldn't trade this job for anything. I don't know why actors are so crazy. I was a dead body. Oh my gosh. And I I was like going like so many directions and like the summer, this summer I was wearing like the winter coat coat, like it was crazy. And it just everything that we like cannot like I don't know how to put it in a word like just craziness. Yeah. In like constant. There's something special about making something out of nothing, which is what we're doing. You know, you get a whole bunch of crazy people that show up someplace. Yes. You look at paper and you're like, okay, make madness happen. Uh, I know. And all of a sudden you get something awesome out of it. It's like, how does that even happen? Like all these, uh, oh God, I love it. I love every second of it. And uh, it's, 
beyond pleasurable to to do. And I, I honestly, I recommend it for people who are having a hard time with certain with with their mental health. I mean, you should try acting. I'm not saying it's going to cure your mental health issues. What will cure your mental health issues is talking to your doctor and getting an evaluation and getting properly medicated and starting therapy. That's what's going to help fix your mental health issues. Acting, I find, is a great outlet. <laughs> you know, I have control of my faculties through all of the tools I use. And as long as I do, I'm going to use them for this. Wow. Do you have any big goal in acting world? Uh, I know it's super cliche, but I'd really like to win an Oscar someday. You will. I, I have a faith in you. Uh, do you have an Oscar speech that is going to get kicked out? Prepared? Oh, I, I'm just going to play it up, off the cuff. You have to practice like 30 second speech from now oh, on. I can, I, can, I can rant for 30 seconds. Lady Gaga was saying when she won the Oscar, she used customer when she was uh, waitressing, I think in Brooklyn. And then um, they thought it was crazy that what she was doing, like Oscar winning speech. And she did it. Yeah. I, I don't know what I'm going to say. We're going to have to see where I'm at when that actually happens. But uh, yeah, I know it's super cliche. Um, I would I would really love to work to, uh, to win an Oscar. And I, if I could make a Western with Clint Eastwood before he transitions, um, that would also be pretty cool. Um, yeah. Mine is the same Oscar and Grammy because I'm a musician. Mm. And I want to be on opera's show sometimes. I, See, yeah. I, I don't know if, whose show, Graham Norton. If I could be on anyone's show, do you know Graham Norton in, in the UK? Mm -mm. He's hilarious. You should check out Graham Norton. I would love to be on Graham Norton's show. Wonderful. So I want to wrap up our show by talking about a gift part. So a gift from adversity, the title came up with um, a lot of, you know, search, like soul search for me. And, you know, all these crazy things that happened to me, child sex abuse from my dad, domestic violence and, you know, bullying and homelessness. I was homeless at 18 in Tokyo. That was very hard. So I was thinking about the title of my book because I've done a lot of public speech and everybody asked me if I had a book and I never had a book. So now I do have a book. And I was thinking, I don't want, I didn't want my book to be very depressing title. Mm. So I put a gift at the beginning. So a gift from adversity. So what do you say maybe your gift that you learned from adversity? Um, resiliency, I would say, is probably the, the greatest gift. I mean, I've learned to be more mentally flexible, um, to not be so rigid. Um, I've learned compassion. Um, I was kind of a monster. I'm not gonna try and butter it up a whole super bunch um before <laughs> i was a monster and uh, so being able to learn um compassion and um hope i guess for humanity that was a big one for me um and being able to tell people that it gets better you know, getting through everything and saying that, and being, yeah, it does genuinely get better. You want it. You have to want it. 
you know, you have to understand that it's a process, not an event. And you have to want to get better. Um, so that was the gift that I got was you got to want it. And being able to tell other people you can have it too, but you really got to want it. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Ethan, uh, for coming to A Gift from Adversity. This has been my manifestation. This has been my vision and packet list. And since 2022 hit, I said to myself, I cannot be lazy. I have to do this. I felt compelled to do this. So I'm very grateful that you came and spoke with me and to the audience um, about your experience of adversity and a gift part of it. So thank you again. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for letting me be part of this. Absolutely. So thank you everyone again for listening to A Gift from Adversity. Our next guest will be John McGee, who is a filmmaker who's coming on the 23rd, and Christopher Boozer, who's coming on the 24th. And he is um, publishing a book called You Can Always Come Back to Killing Yourself. So look forward to that. But thank you again, Ethan, and I will see you soon. Thank you very much, Jerry. Have a great rest of your night. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.